Okay, uh, Exodus chapter 17, I, I believe, and so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and uh, I want to remind you that uh, what we read about here in Exodus, it, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things happen to these people as examples for us. Uh, that we wouldn't basically make the same mistakes, that we wouldn't fall into the same traps that they have fallen into. Um, So their wilderness experience is a type. Uh, It is a type of our Christian life. They have been delivered from Egypt, and the type is they've they've been delivered from their sinfulness, their bondage and sin, and now they're on their journey to their... Uh, promised land. So Canaan, the promised land. Okay, that, that's the type of the Christian life. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have been delivered, we who know Christ have been delivered from the bondage of sin, and we're on our journey to our promised land, uh, which is, this is not it. Uh, some people think Midland is, but this is not it. Uh, I happen to think Redosa might be, but this is not it. So... <laughs> Pebble Beach, there's a Pebble Beach tournament on today. That may be the, the promised land or the next step to get there. So what, what we're doing is that we're living out the type that was given to us in Exodus. We've been delivered by God. We're on this journey to the fullness of our happiness and joy and understanding, which would be in eternity. But in the meantime, we're going through these trials. We're in the wilderness. We're going through the testing. We saw last week that some of the things that happened to the children of Israel were labeled as tests. God said, I'm testing you. Uh, You can define that however you like. The test is a trial. Uh, It it may be hardship. We're told in the New Testament that if we live godly in Christ, we're going to suffer persecution uh, we're, we live in a sin-cursed world, in a sin-cursed body, and suffering is our, uh, su- suffering is our, our, our life. We're going to suffer until we're delivered from this sin-cursed body and delivered from this sin-cursed world. We're always going to live with a measure of suffering. And the suffering might be physical, might be emotional, it might be spiritual, but it's always going to be that we are not complete, we are not whole. And I don't know about you, but sometimes if you think about the longing in your heart for, for a, a wholeness, a joy, a complete joy, see, that's a suffering in itself. We were created in the image of God to dwell in God's presence with the fullness of joy, the fullness of life, the fullness of happiness, the fullness of satisfaction, the, the fullness of being who he created us to be, and we've never experienced it. And we've never, we, you and I, have never experienced that simply because of Adam's sin, and by his sin, sin passed upon all mankind for all of sin, and I have this sin nature, you have this sin nature, and we've never fully experienced the, what God created us to be and to enjoy. We will one day, but in the meantime, we suffer these trials. You may not have any outward trials, but you still have that lack of fullness within you that, that creates a yearning within you. I think you understand what I'm talking about. And then when we actually fall into physical trials or emotional trials or, or, or relational trials, 
that that yearning gets bigger and larger, and and we we have it more time. So we're on this journey. We're on this journey, and that's what we're seeing as we look at these incidents uh, in the life of the nation of Israel. So in chapter 17, we come uh, to their time at Rephidim. And Rephidim. So read with me, if you would. They've already passed through a couple places when they come to chapter 17. So we read this. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Now remember, they had these visible signs of God's presence. They, they, had the, they had the cloud, they had the pillar of fire by night. They had come through the Red Sea uh, with the water standing on each side. And, and, and they, they had seen the, the visible, manifest glory of God. Plus, they were eating manna now every single day that God provided for them. And so they, they, they had seen the Egyptians. You know, so they had had these great experiences with God. And yet, all of a sudden, after three days... With no water, they're forgotten about it, and they're contending with Moses and saying to Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? So we read that they're tempting the Lord. Uh, when, you, when you go down in, in verse 3, uh, or verse 2, the end of verse 2, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? To tempt the Lord is to not believe. To, to, to tempt the Lord is to have an expectation of him that's not realistic. We tempt the Lord when we, uh, even though we know Christ as Savior, we tempt the Lord when we say to the Lord, I'm not happy with this life. I'm not happy with what you've done in my life. I'm not happy with where I am. I'm not happy with who I am. I'm not happy with my circumstances. I, I am blaming it on you, basically. We've talked about, we've already seen that Moses, Moses told us already, that when we're complaining, we're complaining against the Lord. Moses said that you're, you're complaining in my presence, but you're complaining against the Lord. Who am I? I'm not your Lord. Who am I? And basically he's saying the same thing here. Again, look at it very closely in verse 2. Why do you contend with me, but your contention with me is a temptation of the Lord? You're tempting the Lord, is what he's saying, when you're contending with me because I'm just God's servant. I'm obeying God, leading you, and, and you're not happy with my leadership, and I'm not in control of the water of the desert. God's in control, and you're, so you're tempting, tempting God. So Moses goes on, and he names this place uh, uh, Manasseh, and where is it? Uh, we'll come to it in a minute, but okay, up in... Verse 7, so he called the name of the place Massa, Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So when we read this, um, how much better would it be to say tempted and contented instead of, instead of tempted and tempted the Lord? Uh, you know, we're going to struggle. I, 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 we already talked about that. So in our struggle, 
how do you deal with your struggle? How, how, do, you, how do you respond to it? What, how do you think? How do you pray? Do you, or do you blame the Lord? Do you, are you aggravated? Are you disappointed? Or are you, do you recognize, Lord, I'm your child. This, this is a sin-cursed life, and I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to be in your presence one day, and today I just need grace. See, that's not contending with the Lord. That's not tempting the Lord. That's just simply saying, I recognize what this world is, and I recognize that I can't conquer it, and you can, but you've chosen not to until one day. But Christ has already conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that's my promise. And I'm content with that. I'm not happy about it, but I, I don't have to be, you don't have to be happy about it, but you're content with that. It means you're content with the Lord. So, when you, when you read Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is kind of a recap of their journey and all the things that happened to them. When you read Deuteronomy, three different times the Lord refers back to this incident, saying that there's where you contended with me, there's where you were not unhappy with me, and they're repeating the same thing. And so, the, it's not the Lord hasn't forgotten this, he's just saying, this is your problem, your problem is faith. And that's how I want to describe it. It's just faith. You don't, have your, you don't have the right amount of faith in me. So then Moses responds, verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now imagine this. Moses is their deliverer. He's the one that God used to deliver them. He is their, he's their hero. And all of a sudden, because they've gone three days without water, they're ready to stone him. They're, and they impugn his motive. We've already talked about that in the last, the last couple of weeks. They impugn his motive. They said, you brought us out here to die. He didn't bring them out there to die. He brought them out to deliver them. He's obeying God. He, he, how many times have, if, you have, if you've reared children, you've told your children, this is what's be- I know what's best for you. This is what's best for you. You don't see it, but I know what's best for you. And how many times did they think, yeah, sure. And they went right on. They ignored us and, you know, they gave us lip service and went right on, did what they pleased. But, but, but that is true. God knows what's best for us, and Moses knew what's best for them, and yet they're, they're saying, you have the wrong motive. You brought us out here to die. And sometimes we suffer that. If you're in a position of leadership, you suffer that. Leadership is lonely. Moses has all these, maybe two million people around him, and he is a lonely leader, and he has God as his sounding board, and God is his direction. So Moses, again, look at verse 4, cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Here. This is the rod. You remember that God gave him to show to the children of Israel that turned into a snake, and he picked it up again. It turned back into his rod. He took it with him in before Pharaoh. If you remember, it's really kind of interesting, just a little side note. Uh, God said to Moses, this is your rod, but when Moses referred to it, he always referred to it as the rod of God. He, he didn't say, this is my power, this is God's power. And God was saying to him, this is your rod that I gave to you. This is my power in your hand that I've given to you to exercise. So 
Take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we called the name of the place, okay, Massa, and we read this at Meribah, uh, because of the contention of the children of Israel. So here he takes the rod. They're in the desert. He takes the rod of God, and he, he strikes the stone, and enough water comes out to provide for their flocks and their herds. Uh, I, I was reading one commentary, and he said, well, there, maybe there's an artesian well just below, and he broke the surface of it. You know, there was water just below. We do know that. I mean, so, but this is, this is just a miracle. You can't explain away miracles. There, if, if there was enough water there to feed, to, to supply for all the flocks and the herds and all these two million people, or however many there were, and it, it, the pressure would have blown it out. So God brought it there at that moment, and, and so here is this miraculous thing. It's a type of what we find in the New Testament. When the Jews have the temple established, and they're in, they're in the Holy Land, and they're going about their worship, one of the ceremonies they had was that day, um, I, I forgot what day, of, of feast day it would be, but they, they would go in a procession and go down to the brook Kidron and, and scoop up, uh, I guess you'd call it a pitcher of water, pitchers of water, I don't know how much, bring the procession back and the ceremony and everybody's watching and everybody's participating and they come back into the temple and they pour out the water on the altar. And it's symbolic of what happened here that God provided for them in the wilderness, the, the pouring out of the life-giving water. And you remember Jesus on one occasion stood in the temple and said to them when they were doing that, I am the water of life. And they were incensed by that. But he sang to them, I am the water of life. We read in, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it said that all these people that were baptized in Moses in the Red Sea, they came out and they, they drank of that rock, which is what happened here, and that rock that followed them was Christ. So the rock itself wasn't Christ, but the, the water out of the rock was Christ. Christ was with them. God was with them. God is Christ. And Christ is the manifestation in the flesh of God. And so he was with them, and they celebrated that. And Jesus stood there on that day and said, I am the water of life. I am what you need. You remember, he comes to the woman at the well, and uh, a, a woman who had no claim and no privilege and, and no, no hope. And Jesus says to her, that, uh, would you give me a drink? You remember the story, and she said, how would you, a Jew, ask of me, you know, a favor to do something for you? That's just not done. And he said to her, had you known who asked you, I would give you the water that springs up into eternal life. I would give you the water that that ever is going to flow. He said, whoever drinks, let me get it right, whoever drinks this water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Isn't that interesting? We see this typology, and you have that water within you. 
if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and if you're saved, you do, and you have the water of life within you. You have all you need, well, Peter tells us, for, for, for godliness uh, and, and life within you because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Uh, does, uh, so let me, just, let me just be a preacher a minute and ask you, does the water of life bubble up out of you? Are people refreshed in your presence? Are, are they refreshed by who you are and your, your love, concern, your hope that you have, your, your faith in Christ? Are they refreshed when they interact with you? Uh, I'm not going to answer that for myself, but, but we need to think about that. You have the water of life within you. You have, you have the fullness of Christ within you to, to, to respond to life's circumstances and situation. When these people began to drink of this water, they were so happy about that. You can just imagine how refreshing that would be, how, how refreshing that was. And, and they go and, and, and they memorialize it and remember it. And so it's so significant, this incident. And then we, let me remind you again, you come to the New Testament and you, you, you remember, this is Jesus. This is what he did for us. He gave us this refreshing water of life, and, and we should always remember that when we're in trial. I belong to Jesus. This is, this, what I'm going through today is temporary. I have the eternal hope of, of God's blessing in my life for eternity. And I'm not minimizing pain. I'm not minimizing struggle. But I'm just saying we should have hope as we go through this. Here's another little thought. Jesus was struck with the rod this, 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 of, of Moses. Um, this rock was struck by the water, rod of Moses. Water came out, life-giving water. Jesus was struck uh, by the Lord of Moses. And what, what's the law of Moses? We're going to get to that in, in, in next week. It's the law. The rod of Moses is going to bring the law. So now... In, they're almost to the place. They're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And we'll deal with that next week. So they're receiving the Ten Commandments. So this is the law. And what does the law do? According to Galatians, the law teaches us that we're sinners. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Now, the law was given to the nation of Israel as a protection. We, we this morning, uh, when we left our house, we probably locked the door, closed the garage, whatever you do, and however you go out. And so... That, that's the protection. The law is a protection. These people had been slaves. They had wandered. You'll hear this again next week. They had wandered. You know, they had been slaved. Now they're out. And, they, and they, they have no authority figure other than Moses. And they don't fully trust him. So God is saying, I'm giving you the order of how to live in society. I'm going to teach you how to live together. I'm going to give you this law so that it's a fence of protection for your life. It's how you relate to me. It's how you relate to each other. It's how you relate to yourself. I'm teaching you, God is saying, by giving this law. But the law also teaches us that when you step outside that perimeter, then you are violating God's law and you're on dangerous ground. And so the law is a protection, but the law is also a curse. Because when you violate it, you're held accountable. Where there, we read in Romans, where there is no law, there is no sin. If God hadn't given us a moral law, there would be no moral sin. 
And our world today thinks there is no moral sin, but God has given us a moral law. And so there is moral sin in our law, and everyone will be held accountable for it. They're not today, I'm not today, but they will be one day when they stand before the presence of Christ in judgment. So Christ was struck, the curse of the law struck Christ, and from him flowed the water to satisfy our spiritual thirst. We used to sing a a hymn, and maybe still do, uh, let the water and the blood from thy riven side or the wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save me from its wrath and power. Interesting, isn't it, that these things were shown to us in the Old Testament, now they come to pass in the New Testament, and we're living them out today. We who are the ancestors, we who are the descendants of these, by faith of these people of Israel. And then the battle comes. You remember God brought them a different way so they wouldn't have to fight with the Philistines, but now they're coming to the Amalekites. Uh, read with me verse 8. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose out some men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua, did I say Joseph? Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalekite prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. He sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalekite and his people with the edge of the sword. So it's really interesting. When, when you come to this, they come to this battle. At first... God didn't want them to fight. They weren't prepared to fight. So now they come to this nation of Amalek, and they're going to fight. Uh, They are are going to now have to defend themselves under the the authority of God. They're going to have to defend themselves. I I want you to go to the, the, the verses I hadn't read just yet, but go with me back to verse 14. And I haven't read this little paragraph, but when the Lord said to Moses, write, this for a memorial to, in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalekite from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it uh, its name. The Lord is my banner. For he said, because of the Lord, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalekite from generation to generation. That's really interesting. He said, I have destroyed them. But you're going, to have, you're going to have war with them from generation to generation. Again, when you go into Deuteronomy, you find that Amalekite was a son of Abraham by his second wife. So, so Amalekite um, was, okay, let me, let me start over. No, we'll get, that's the next chapter. Jer- Jethro was, a, was, was part of that. Okay, let me start over. The Amalekites had married into the line of Esau. Okay, Esau is the son of Jacob. I need to look at my notes before I speak. So Esau was the son of Jacob. 
And you remember Esau represented the flesh, and Jacob, even though he was conniver, represented the promise. Uh, he was the godly line. Esau is the ungodly line. And here the Lord said, so these Amalekites were descended. At the, uh, Amalek was a descendant of Esau. And so he came from the same line, but now he's the ungodly line. And God said, you're going to have a battle with these people from generation to generation. Okay, we're in that battle today. If you brought their lines down, and I think Robert Reed had mentioned this to you once before, but you bring those lines down. Herod, at the time of Christ's death, Herod was of the line of Amalek and Jesus of the line of Jacob. That battle went on at that point in time. It's going on in our life today. This is the battle of godliness versus ungodliness. This is the battle of the world system and we who want to live for Christ. This is the battle in my heart between the flesh and the spirit. This is the battle in our society between morality and no morality. This, this is the battle that, that is being fought throughout all eternity until Christ comes again and claims this kingdom as his own kingdom. And he establishes a rule of law uh, with a rod of iron for that thousand-year reign and then eternity after that. So you understand, this is the battle. Again, you go to Deuteronomy, and what you find is that the Amalekites, when they came to this battle, we don't have the details here, but we have it in Deuteronomy, when the, the Jews are passing through or by them or however in the desert wilderness, they live down in the Negev, which is down uh, the southern part of, between Egypt and Israel, and, and as they're going through, the Amalekites come and they attack the stragglers. So whoever's straggling, I mean, imagine you have this long column of people and they have the flocks, the herds, and they're traveling and there's some, there's some people who are straggling behind. There are people who are maybe weak or tired or old like us. And, they, and so they're going along. And the Amalekites are attacking them. They're not attacking the soldiers of the front. They're not attacking where Moses is, but they're attacking these stragglers. They're attacking the people who are, are not really paying attention. And so that is also a picture of the Christian life. When, when I do not avail myself of the things of God, I'm opening myself to attack from Satan. I'm opening myself to attack from the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the things the world has to offer. When, when, I'm not, when, I'm not, when I'm not full of the Spirit and following Christ closely, I'm vulnerable, and so are you. Isn't that interesting? So when you read there, that's where they were attacking. And Moses said, we're going we're gonna to have a battle. We're going to get it right out front and have a battle. And what you learn when we just read these few verses... It is a spiritual battle. Again, we read that in, when Paul's writing is that we don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against principalities and powers, and, and, and we war against uh, things in heavenly places. We, we war against evil. We, we war against Satan's power. When, when we think about Russia being our enemy, and China being our enemy, and Iran being our enemy, and North Korea being our enemy, 
and, and they're, they're the enemy of nations, but our biggest enemy is sin. Our biggest enemy is the lust, the fresh, pride of life, and what is it, the love of the world or something like that. So, uh, see, that's, that's the enemy, and, and we don't recognize it. And when we don't walk closely with the Lord, we are open to being captured. We're, o- we're open to being, now you're not going to lose your salvation if you know Christ, but we're going to lose the joy, we're going to lose, we're going to become contentious with, with God and his dealing in our life, and we're going to be captured by the Amalekite system, which is the world system. I, I don't know if you read the news or read the, I, I, how closely, I know, you, I know you hear news all the time, but when, when we, when you think hard about what's happening, and you see the divisions, and I, I, I don't really care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and I try never to deal in those things. I mean, I will privately with you, but not, that's not my job here. My job here, and my purpose here is to speak about Christ. But when, 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 you, when you deal with those issues of our society today, they are spiritual battles. They all can be defined as spiritual battles. Is there a moral law that God has given? Is he the moral lawgiver, or is it we ourselves? So it's humanism versus Christianity. And, and that's my problem as well. Am I dependent upon myself, or am I dependent upon God? And, and then that's manifest in, in the whole society, the whole world. Every person deals with it. Every nation deals with it. What is the basis of your law? What is the basis of, of your society? And, and, and it's just a battle that continues on. That's what the Lord said. From generation to generation, you're going to have trouble with these people. You remember later on, he, when Saul becomes their first king, and God tells him to go and, and, and destroy the Amalekites. And you remember the story. He goes and he does battle with them and defeats them. But he brings back, and, and, God, and Samuel said to Saul, destroy everything. Destroy the flocks, herds, the people, everything. Now why? Why would God say destroy the people? Because they had been sinners for all these, all these years. God had been patient with them, and, and they, were, they were anti-God in everything. So Saul goes, and he defeats them, but he brings back the king, you remember, and he brings back the flocks. He didn't want. He, he looked at those flocks of sheep, and he just said, "Well, those are valuable. You know, those are, well, I'm not going to destroy those. Those are valuable. Why would I destroy that?" You know, so he brings them back, and Samuel comes and said, uh, "Why do I hear this bleeding in my ear?" He, he, he said, "Have you been obedient?" And Saul said, "I did all you said." He said, "Why do I hear the bleeding in my ear of these sheep?" And Saul said, "Well, I just saved them to sacrifice." Sound like what a teenager would say. And say, well, <laughs> I saved them to sacrifice. And so, and you remember that famous, famous statement. Let me see if I can remember it right then. When, when then Samuel replied, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Which tells me that if I'm here this morning to worship, my worship is meaningless unless I'm in a, a state of obedience. I can't gain anything with my worship this morning if I'm not 
humble in my heart in obedience to the Lord, and neither can you. It's really a waste of time. You might as well go down to Whataburger and have breakfast. So, and I'm not going with you, but because it might burn down while you're down there. So, but unless you're in a, you understand what I'm saying. And 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 we see we want to bargain with God as well. We want to say, well, you know, I'm having this terrible argument with my wife, and I wish she'd straighten up, and we won't talk to each other. But we're going to go to church and we're going to worship. Don't poke anybody this morning. Yeah. And we're going to go and we're going to worship. It ain't working. It ain't going to work. Uh, God's not interested. And so let me say, you know, when I, I'm off track here. So we're, we're in this battle. We're always going to be in this battle. And if you don't recognize it, there's no way you can win. If you don't recognize that the battle that's happening to you, you you'll never win. Okay. It's a spiritual battle. When the rod of God was held up, which means that they were in dependence upon God, the Israelis won. And when the rod of God came down, when his arms got tired, the rod of God came down, they didn't win. And, and the, the implication is to us, God could have let them win with the, with the thought. He, he could have just let them win uh, without the rod of God or anything. But he's teaching them that this is a spiritual battle. It's won by prayer. It's won by the idea of I am, I am in God's hand. I'm trusting him. I'm dependent, I'm dependent upon him. And there, another interesting thing I read one person brought, brought out, excuse me, the young men went out to fight and the old men prayed. And, and so everybody has a part. There wouldn't have been a victory without the fight. God could give a victory if he wanted to without a fight, but he wants us to participate. Just like we saw with the manna last week is that it's there, but you have to go gather it up and you have to prepare it and you have to eat it or it's of no benefit to you at all. The same thing. We have, to, we have to participate in the fight if we're going to reap the reward. And so, interesting. The, the, their, their strength wasn't in their numbers. Their strength was in the Lord's promise to them. And when they acknowledged that, by holding up the rod, God gave them victory. Okay, and then chapter 18. We have just a few minutes left. I'm trying to see that clock for... Okay. We have about 10 minutes left. And chapter 18 is about Jethro. Now, now I'm going to get him right. Jethro is the priest of Midian. Um, re- read with me the first five verses, and then we'll go from there. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. So Moses, you remember, we supposed earlier on that this woman, Zipporah, did not go with Moses after the circumcision incident. So she went back. It didn't really tell us that, but she's never mentioned again. When we come here, it tells us that she had gone back then with Moses' children uh, and her children and back to her dad. And now he, he's bringing her. 
Okay, so he brings Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, whom he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other one was Elazir, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Joseph, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and with her two sons. So he, he comes back and he interacts here in this chapter with Moses. He is a priest of, of, of Midian. And when we read about this, what he, what he does when he comes is that not only does he bring his daughter and the two children, two grandchildren, but then he observes Moses, and for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to tell you about it. He observes Moses. One of the things Moses is doing is when the, when the nation's encamped, and, and Moses is their judge. And so the people have contention. Can you imagine here are, are, are these multitudes of people, and they're traveling with their flocks and their herds, and your flocks get intermingled with my flocks, and we have this contention, and sheep look alike, and so we say, those are my sheep. And you said, no, those are my sheep. Somebody had to sort that out, and everyone was going to Moses. And you're going to read here, they stood before Moses from early in the morning to all day long, and Moses answered these petty things. I'm sure Moses is always thinking, for goodness sake, you know what I mean? You know, but, but he did that all day long, and Jethro's looking at it, and he says, Moses, are you crazy? You can't do that. And he said, you need to appoint men who are responsible men, godly men, and you need to appoint them, and, and you be over those men, and you appoint those men to judge the people, and so break it down into groups, and let them judge, and then let uh, them have people over them, and those people answer to you. And if something's too hard for them, then let it be brought to you. But you can't do that. And here's what he said to him, and I think this is the most significant thing. Let me see if I can find the right uh, verses. Okay, look at verse 19. Chapter 18, verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk, and the work that they must do. Okay, and then he said, more well, you select people to be over them. So what he's saying to them, you're to stand before God. Here's your work, Moses. You're to stand before God, and you're to teach the people. So you're to pray and teach. And you know, when you come to the New Testament, that's the pastor's job, is to pray and teach. And, and, and the administration is to be done by someone else. And it's the it's very same principle, and Jethro gives this, and he said, the, the most significant thing you could do, Moses, is to pray and to teach and let someone else do, do these other things. I can just imagine that when that took place, there were some of the leaders of Israel who didn't get selected to be in leadership. So now they're saying, well, what's up with Moses? I used to go and talk to him. And now he thinks he's too important that I can't go and talk to him anymore. I've had people say that to me when I was pastoring. You don't care about me anymore now that you're the pastor. You don't have, and I want to say, you're, you, 
I'm not going to tell you what I wanted to say. <laughs> I generally said, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't know you cared. So, <laughs> you understand, God has a place for all of us. God, has, God is a God of organization. And uh, here's the good news. You may not get to talk to the pastor, but you can talk to God anytime you want to. And, and you know, and if you're talking to God, you wouldn't care whether you talk to the pastor or not. And so let me just be very blunt with you. Get your priorities right. You know, you, you know there's occasion you may need to talk to the pastor. And I'm not him, by the way, so thank goodness. So, so every now and then I want to talk to the pastor. And I want to tell him, turn the heat up in the, in the auditorium. I'm freezing. I tell him that every now and then. <laughs> okay, I'm wandering off here, and so, so Jethro he he gives this he gives this advice, and then you know you're wondering, and then he departs and he goes back, and you're wondering about Jethro. You're thinking, okay, here's the people of here's the people of promise. A- after Jethro sees what's happening, they, he builds an altar. He worships. And Moses with him and all, and they worship together. But Jethro, it, it, we get the indication he instigated, and he, he worships and praises God for what he sees. Here's the deliverance, this great people, and they're going to the promised land. And I'm thinking, why didn't he go with them? But when you go back to Exodus 2, and you first read when Moses fled from Egypt, and he goes and he meets Jethro, you read there that Jethro has seven daughters. So here he's bringing one daughter with, with her children, but he still has this big family back home. We don't know if he still has a wife, but he has daughters and grandchildren, and he's the priest, and he's the priest of God. And there's a couple of things that I draw from that, is that he doesn't, he's not Jewish. He doesn't have to go with them to their promised land. He's already worshiping. He's a worshiper of God. And there's a couple of things I draw from that is that God teaches us that he selected Abraham to make of Abraham a, a nation. And that one day in the millennial kingdom, there'll be a nation without number. Today they're numbered. And today there's a few million Jewish people. And in fact, sometimes there's more Jewish people in the United States than there is in Israel. And, but there's a few million Jewish people but one day, they'll be as the sand of the seashore, and they'll be as the stars of heaven, and that'll be during the millennial kingdom. But So God chose them, not because they were special. He chose them to make them special. And what was going to be special about them? They were to take the gospel to the world. They were to bring forth the Christ and take the gospel to the world. They failed to do that, and they suffered horrendously because they failed, because they were disobedient. And it doesn't make them bad people, it just makes them like us. It makes them sinners. And so, but God's still going to redeem them as a nation one day, individually, one by one. They're going to be redeemed and give glory to God. But Jethro is not a part of that. I'm not a part of that. You're not a part of it. I'm not Jewish. Now, if you're Jewish, you can be a part of that. But I'm not Jewish by birth or by blood or so. But, but their faith was passed down to us. We're, we're, Abraham was the father of faith. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And so 
when, when, you, when you recognize God had a special place for them, and I choose to be a Baptist. Here's the point I want to make. I choose to be a Baptist. I choose to be here in this church, and I choose it because it's doctrinally true. Initially, when I chose it, I chose it because this is all I knew. This is where you know I got saved. Baptist people reached me for Christ, and it's all I knew. Today, I, I know other things, but I still choose to be here to be a Baptist. But I recognize there are people who worship God who do not choose exactly like I do. They don't choose to be identified with Baptists. And I'm going to say to you, uh, if they're like Jethro, if they worship the true God and he guides their steps and he approves of their worship, I accept that. They don't have to be exactly like, they don't have to be exactly like I am. Now, when I say when they worship the true God, they have to believe the tenets, the basic tenets of the faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He's virgin born, He died, buried, was resurrected. He, he's the only one that gives salvation, that salvation comes through Him, and there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. If they, if they believe all that, they can be sprinkled as far as I'm concerned. Now, they can't be sprinkled and join this church, but they can be sprinkled if they want to be sprinkled. And, and it's, that's okay. That's between them and God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying I'm a, uh, what, what's the word? I'm, I'm not saying I believe in all religions. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that for people who worship Christ, they can be different than I am. They can be a different denomination than I am. They can be a different, uh, go in a different direction. I think it, it needs to be biblical direction, but it be a different direction. And I think if you get the Bible right, you're going to be a Baptist. <laughs> so, anyway, that's just what I think. That's why I'm here. So he departs. Okay. And you wonder, okay, had he gone with them, would he have been a partaker of their promises? Um, I, don't, I don't know. But there's no condemnation about him departing. So he departs, and he goes back to Midian and continues to be the priest before God for the benefit of the people in, in Midian. Well, our, our time is up this morning, and I just want to say, that, that where's your life going? Where, what are you doing? Uh, are, are you committing yourself? Are you, are you following the, the, the providence of God? Are you, are, are you in partaking of the living water? Is it flowing out of you? Um, over and over, they're going to refer, and the New Testament refers to this incident about the water flowing from the rock, and we're in this battle of, of righteousness against unrighteousness in my own heart, in our church, in our society, in Midland, in our world. And where are you in that battle? Where, where, where are you? Is, is the water flowing out of you to those people who don't understand, and they're on the Amalekite side, and, and not the Israeli side. And I hope you see that that's the picture of our world, and everything falls within that context. And you're on one side or the other. You're participating or, or you're observing one or the other. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together this morning. And I, I pray that uh, you would help us, uh, Lord, that we'd recognize what you've done on our behalf, that you... You're with us day by day, every day, that you, Lord, you want us to rejoice in your grace and to trust you with all of our heart. 
never to not to not to complain, and uh, Lord, not to be uh, that we ever contend with you or tempt you in any way with our expectation of who you are or what you're doing in our lives, but Lord, to give you glory. So please help us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lord bless you. We'll see you in church.